If you have your Bibles with you this morning, or your favorite app, we'll be in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20 this morning. Matthew 5, 17 to 20, and uh, I've had a lot of good feedback on, uh, you know, the Sermon on the Mount that we've run through a couple weeks now. You know, this is one of the most extended passages that we have of Jesus' teachings, whereas if you look in uh, the Gospels, across the Gospels, you might get a teaching here and there, and then you have the, the Gospel writers talking about what Jesus did, but this is the most extensive section that we have for two chapters where Jesus doesn't stop. He just continues teaching. And so Matthew gives us this account and really lays out the, the importance of this account, and we'll see why it's so important as we continue journeying and traveling through these couple of chapters. If you found your spot in Matthew 5, would you please stand for the reading of Christ's Word? Again, we're in verses 17 through 20 this morning. May you hear the Word of Christ. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches other, others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not certainly enter the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this morning in which we can gather as a people under the word, that we submit ourselves under the word, acknowledging that this is a gift from you and that you have gifted it to your people that we might understand and we might discern what it means for us to be followers in this day. And so, Lord, may you continue to teach us about your righteousness, your holiness, and your goodness. But most importantly, Father, may we truly experience the love of your Son this morning. And may we leave from this place not just only experiencing it, but expressing it in so many ways and wherever you've called us to be. And so, Lord, at this time, may you open our hearts and our ears and our minds to receive the word that you have for this church this morning. We offer these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. As a New Year's resolution, uh, I began walking. Not much to really brag about. <laughs> for sure, people have higher goals than that. Running X amount of miles in a year. Uh, jogging certain amount of miles a week. But mine is just simple. One and a half to two miles a night. That's it. And since it's not entirely a ritual yet, it's a hit or miss. I might walk for two nights and miss another two nights. Uh, but it's not really about the exercise. The exercise is good. That's a benefit from it. But it's more about the quiet. It's more about the solitude that I get to experience for about 25 to 30 minutes in an evening. Uh, to look up at the sky. To feel the raindrops that I felt a couple of nights ago, uh, to be able to experience just even in the times where we think, you know what, rain is not that great, you get to see it as a gift. 
And so for those 25 to 30 minutes, I tried to pray as much as possible. And of course, after the kids are in bed, I can I start that walk. It's a third of a mile. I've already got it figured out. It's a third of a mile down our street. And of course, a third of the mile way back. And some nights when I'm praying, sometimes it's for a clarity in a sermon about a, a particular illustration to use or a, a proper understanding of what the writer of whatever it is that we're going through meant by this word or phrase. Or sometimes I'm praying for this very church, spiritual protection, physical health, and the like. What it means for us to live out intentionally in the year of 2020, those types of things. Sometimes I'm praying uh, selfishly for my family. Who they are, who they're becoming, the growth that they are going through. Uh, I've been told three times, four times this past week that, uh, that Garland has already shot up a couple of inches, and he has. You don't see that growth on a daily basis, but slowly you see it. Sometimes I'm praying for friends, uh, close friends who are experiencing heartaches or death or um, new chapters in life. Or as I'm walking down, of course, I'm praying for the neighbors that are beside us. Some that we know pretty well and some that we're slowly getting to know and some on the very end of the street we don't know at all. But we're praying for them. But as I start praying, oftentimes, and maybe you experience this too, your mind goes in other places, doesn't it? You think, I'm going to devote just a few minutes of praying, and then you begin daydreaming about something that you have to get done or you're going to do in the next day or so. But one of those random questions that popped in my head when I was daydreaming as it relates to this sermon was this. We talk about Jesus in the church as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. The question is, why does this matter? I've sat under professors, some of the most brilliant minds, who helped me untangle this uh, as it relates to how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And we're going to see bits and pieces of this uh, this morning, but why does it even matter? How does that shape us into a people? How does this shape us into a church that directs our lives under the banner of Christ Himself. Why does it matter that He fulfilled the law? And honestly, the question that I've been asked a few times is, how does this even affect my walk with God? I mean, can't I walk with God without Christ being the fulfillment of the Old, Old Testament? We're going to look at those. And so here's how I understand. If I can give you just a little snippet of how I understand this for us as the church. Imagine your life. The life that you're living right now without the event of your birth. Can you? You can't. Imagine your life where it is right now without that first boyfriend or girlfriend in your life. You can't. Imagine your life without, or where it is right now without your wedding day. Or the moment you held your first child or you fill in the blank, or whatever it is that you've experienced in life, you cannot imagine your life without that moment. Can you? You can't. The moments, those moments, those chapters in your life, those events and circumstances, they shaped you. 
into the person that you are, and they have led you to where you currently are, where you're sitting in this very moment. Likewise, I think the Old Testament, with its laws, its prophets, its poetry, its stories, its proclamations, its laments, its histories, are all the moments, the chapters, the events, the circumstances that God in His providence brought into existence in order to display His Son. All of those moments and events all shaped the entirety, not only of history, but Israel's history, so that they could see themselves one day looking face to face with, with this Messiah, this King David in His rule and reign and the genealogy that it flowed from. And at just the right time, the Father reveals His Son. Church, as a people, we live our lives, I said a minute ago in our prayer, that we live as people under the authority of the Word. You cannot imagine and understand Christ without just a few of these things, such as Adam and Eve. Because it is through these first parents that they break the actual testimony that God had given them to not eat of. They break that. But when Christ shows up, He's the one who breaks the chain of their sin and all of humanity's sin. You cannot imagine and understand Christ without Noah because Jesus is the ark of our judgment that was going to be upon us, but He sends His own Son. The Father sends His Son as an ark. You cannot imagine and understand Christ without Abraham because Jesus, we're told by Paul, is the promised seed of Abraham. You cannot imagine uh, and understand Christ without Moses because he is the one who is sent in order to restore and redeem an entire people out of slavery and oppression and sin. And what do you know? Here's Jesus as the leader who does the exact same thing. You cannot understand and imagine Christ without Elijah. Isaiah or any other prophet because they longed to meet the one that they had spoken about. Jesus is the bigger and better of each of these characters. And we cannot, I'm convinced, understand the entirety of the Old Testament without this Jesus and vice versa. And so now let's look into the passage a little bit with more preciseness and understand what Jesus is after in these verses. Verses 17 and 18, let me repeat those for just a second. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will, be, uh, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. When we hear the word law today, as it relates to Scripture, we might think of maybe the Ten Commandments. Those ten very precise laws that God gave to Israel. But we can't quickly associate it like that. I would say that that's an incorrect or really a malnourished view of what the law actually is in the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments, I think we can say, are a part of the law or even a brief summary of the law. But how a Jewish person understood in, in the time of Jesus or even how 
he understands today in Israel, law was so much broader and more expansive than that. Look at verse 17 again. Notice the phrase that Jesus says, the law or the prophets. If you were to go and buy an actual Hebrew Bible, you would notice that there are slight differences between our Bible and theirs, particularly how they're put together. So when you open up a Hebrew Bible, there would be three sections in this Bible. It contained three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The law, the prophets, and the writings. The law is known as, in the Hebrew language, the Torah. And then you have the prophets, the Ketuvim, and then the writings, the Netuvim. Excuse me, the Nevi'im. Or sometimes we might associate them in two parts. Instead of three, they would speak of them more broadly as the law or the prophets. So when Jesus is referring to the law and the prophets, he's actually talking just about a broad word and saying all the scriptures, the law and the prophets, all that is contained in them will not be abolished. They all spoke about me. They all are referenced to me. And so when Jesus opens up with this caution of do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, he's saying that he's not come to destroy, to terminate every page, every story, and every teaching in the Jewish Bible. Rather, he says, I've come to fulfill them. To fulfill, it means to make whole or make complete let me give another personal illustration to sort of give a picture of what I think Jesus is after here. Jade and I, as you know, have a big family. Four kids, two of us, six is all. But we knew after Sophie was born that we had this longing, this yearning for one more. It's almost as, as if we were pulled for one more child. We couldn't explain it. It's not like we had some sort of very clear evidence for it. We just were, were longing and we sensed that there was supposed to be somebody else we were supposed to welcome in our, into our family. And that's the thing. We were a family. We were a family. We are a family. And yet we were longing for something more to complete the family that we already had. If I can use the frail, this frail and faulty illustration uh, to you this morning in order to communicate this. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Ava, we longed for her. We didn't know when she was going to show up, if she was going to show up, but we were pulled in this direction. And now that we look at her, we can actually say, yes, we are now full and complete. We're whole as a family. And now the entirety of our life that we know, it is a family. We're complete. The Hebrew Scriptures longed for their fulfillment. For their being complete and made whole through the coming one to the the one who pointed to in every single page and story. And let me add this about the law. As Americans, we tend to think of the Old Testament as bad. We might think of the Old Testament as some sort of uh, bunch of laws that are thrown together or maybe even an angry God that seems to be over there in that testament. 
and we might picture the New Testament as good, we might picture the New Testament as filled with grace, or we might feel uh, that the New Testament is talking about this loving God. But I don't think this could be any further from the truth. Is that the entirety of the Testaments, the Old and the New, point to this God who is so graceful that He gives His understandings, He gives His instructions to His people in order to restore them back to Himself. And He promises one day to show with such clear picture of who He's talking about. This Jesus is the one who is promised. In fact, if you look at Psalm 119, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, if you definitely want some very thick reading, read Psalm 119. It's our longest psalm. But listen how the writer speaks about the law in this psalm. I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that came from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one who rejoices in great riches. I meditate upon your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Be good to your servant while I live. That I may obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your law. You hear him? He adores the law. He's in awe of the law itself. Why? Simply put, the law is a gift from the Lord himself. It is even an extension of his own holiness and goodness because it guides his people in his ways. It directs their feet towards him and it nourishes and nurtures their lives as honey is to the tongue. And all of it, the smallest of letter to the least stroke of the pen, points to Jesus as their fulfillment. As one writer puts it, Jesus wasn't intending to abandon the law and the prophets. Israel's whole story, commands, promises, and all was going to come true in him. But now that he was here, a way was opening up for Israel and through all that, all the world to make God's covenant a reality in their own selves, changing behavior, not just by teaching, but by the change of hearts and minds itself. Church, let me try to make this as clear as possible. I don't think, not until we're in awe of the Scriptures, like the writer is in Psalm 119, will we be changed by them. Not until we're in awe of the Scriptures will we begin to be changed by them. On top of that, not until we're in awe of Jesus will we be changed by Him. Because there seems to be that connection that you find throughout the Scriptures is that as the people are in awe of the Scriptures, as they're in awe of God, they begin to be transformed into His own holiness and goodness. We don't just memorize the Scriptures and we certainly don't read the Scriptures for some end of semester or really end of life test. That's not what they're for. We read and we listen to the Scriptures because we're hearing from our God Himself. He speaks to His people. Let me put it this way. Imagine a relationship, whether it's friendly or marital, without communication, without words. Can you imagine that? And I'm not trying to be uh, picky here and try to be 
uh, half humorous, but some sort of communication, you completely stop it. Imagine that friendship. Imagine that marriage without that happening. There wouldn't be dinner table conversations. There wouldn't be hot debates at times. There wouldn't be any words of affirmation. There wouldn't be any sweet whispers. There wouldn't be any hellos or good mornings or see you laters. There wouldn't be, how can I help you? There wouldn't be even, I'm, a, I'm here for you. There wouldn't be disappointment shared and there wouldn't be the hardest of all to not hear, I love yous. It is in and through the words that we express on a daily basis that we engage with others and that we even express ourselves. It is through words that we do these things. Hickory Grove, I don't think it's much different with the Bible. It is in and through the law, the prophets, and the writings, the entirety of the Old Testament, the Gospels, Paul's letters, and other apostles that we hear the expressions of who God is, what He has done, what He is up to, and what He is, will be doing, and most importantly, how we can engage with this God. So I think that's why each small letter or stroke of a pen, your translation might be, and not even an iota or a dot. The smallest of letters and the least stroke of a pen of why the Scriptures matter to Jesus. Because they reveal Himself. The Scriptures express Himself. And on top of that, they even invite us to engage with Him. Verses 19 and 20. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I remember hearing a sermon years ago where a pastor told the congregation that every time you saw the word Pharisee, you should go, boo. I'm not going to ask you to do that. But he was trying to exercise a type of reading for us as a congregation that when you saw certain words like Pharisee, you should boo the person or boo the group of people. But I'm not sure that that's always the, uh, the case, especially the verses that are directly in front of us. Jesus tells His followers, uh, followers that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What is He saying then? I mean, here he is often engaging with the Pharisees, with the teachers of the law, and oftentimes he's got some harsh words for them. But then he makes this kind of remark that unless your righteousness surpasses like those of the Pharisees, teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom. I think what Jesus is doing, he's affirming the good righteousness of the Pharisees. For example, he looks at their prayer life. He looks at their giving to the poor, their fasting, and their many other practices. And he understands that Pharisees were the teachers of the Scriptures in their day. They are the PhDs. They are the pastors. They are the uh, most notable people who understand 
the scriptures as they are given, but also they became known as the policers of the law. The issue Jesus has with many Pharisees in many interactions is that he doesn't like the way that they oppress Israel, the people around them. He doesn't agree with how they especially oppress people with the law because they turn, the Pharisees, they turn the aim of the law, which is really to become holy as God is holy, they turn them into bondage. They turn them into slavery by introducing them and policing them on all of Israel and saying, do this, don't walk this many steps in a day, especially on the Sabbath. Don't eat this particular food, even though it sort of talks about that in Scripture and in Leviticus, but you should probably shouldn't do that. They go around and they oppress people with the law, and that's when Jesus has plenty of harsh words for the Pharisees and teachers of the law. One writer says this, The scribes and the Pharisees do indeed teach a way of being faithful to God, a way of behaving in accordance with God's covenant. But God's own sovereign rule, the kingdom of heaven, is even now breaking in. And those who want to belong to the new world that He is opening up through His life and death and resurrection, they must discover a way of covenant behavior that goes far, far beyond the scribes and the Pharisees ever dreamed of. In other words, as Jesus enters into the world of the Israelites. He's reminding them, yes, the teachings are excellent. They're good. They reveal God's holiness and they invite you to practice these things as well with the right heart, with the right posture, aiming towards justice and righteousness and goodness and full shalom, flourishing for all the people of Israel. At the same time, we have to be careful that the Pharisees do not oppress you with the very beautiful gifts that God has given to His people. But the sovereign rule that we find in the kingdom of heaven, especially what we find here in the teachings in Matthew 5-7, through I put in front of us, what does that look like for us to practice God's righteousness, God's holiness? What does it mean for us to truly be a people who are broken over others. A people who do pay attention to the poor in spirit. To the ones who are being persecuted for righteousness sake as we looked at a couple of weeks ago in the Beatitudes. Who are we as a people? Are our hearts in the right place? Are we posturing ourselves in humility, in Christ's humility? And are we aiming towards that kingdom as the way Christ invites us to aim towards that kingdom? Or are we oppressing people with the very teachings of scriptures the way that the Pharisees did? So let's address that first question that I asked at the beginning of this sermon. Why does it even matter that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the Old Testaments, the fulfillment of the prophets and the writings? I think it's as simple as this. And I'm stealing this from the letter uh, that Paul writes to the Corinthians. If Jesus wasn't the Messiah, if He wasn't the Christ, if He wasn't the Son of God, if He wasn't God in the flesh, if He didn't die on a cross, and if He didn't resurrect from the tomb, then you and I are still in our sins, 
and our faith is useless and pointless. Read 1 Corinthians 15, for example, to get Paul's full announcement of that. But if he is the Messiah, if he is the Christ, the Son of God, if he is God in the flesh and the one who died on a cross and resurrected from the tomb, and if our allegiance ourselves is towards him and him alone, then your faith puts you in a right relationship with this God, with the Father, through his Son, and of course, the Spirit is the one who is transforming us daily into the, uh, the Son's own image and likeness. And He transforms our image as a potter molds that piece of pottery. <clears throat> and I think this transformation will be evident in your relationships, your marriages, your friendships, your families, and how you speak to people and how you care for others. In your posture before food, you see dinners as gifts. Not just, how can we eat and be done? It will change the way you even fish and hike. You see those quiet moments as worshipful. It could be even the mesmerizing moments with your babies when you hold them, when they're not crying, and they're not unsettled, but you see their eyes, and you see the world that's ahead of them, and you see this truly as a moment, as a gift. And yes, even in your work, we see jobs and employment as opportunities to love and to honor Christ with our work. In short, if Jesus says who He says He is, then we will look less like ourselves and we'll look more like Him. The smallest moments of your life, the most messy of your day's tasks, your own daily iotas and dots, will be filled with the wonders and the mysteries of Christ. When you embrace Him as the fulfillment of the Scriptures and the hope of all the creation, Jesus fulfills the entirety of that Old Testament. Not just parts, the entirety. And He meets us in the smallest, those iotas. He meets us in those moments to redeem and restore us back to the Father. And He even meets us in the messiness, the dots of our lives in order to restore them and to bring them in alignment with the Father Himself. And the Spirit is there working in us along that whole time in order to show and display that not only is Jesus the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament, but also the One who is the Lord and the One who is sovereign over even the smallest of our lives so that we can be intentional in the ways that we live in order to exalt the name of Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. And we might use that word too often we, to say thank you. But I think sometimes we can pause and really step back and reflect on actually expressing those words to you. They don't stop at the ceiling. They aren't just spoken out towards the rest of this congregation. It isn't just a word for the person sitting next to us. Those are two words, thank you, that are lifted up to you. That we can meet and gather as a body. And we cannot be united as a body unless the Christ is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. He is the one who has bridged both Jew and Gentile. That's why we call Him Messiah. He is the one who is of the lineage of David. He is the one that the prophets 
longed to see and spoke about. He is the one that the Psalms express in their entirety. He is the one that the poetry is written for and written about. And so, Lord, as we dive into Scripture on a daily or weekly basis, may you give us eyes to see and may you give us ears to hear that there's your Son echoing throughout the Old Testament. And so, Father, may it go beyond that. May this same Son echo in our lives. That as we meet people and we talk to them, they sense that there's just something different about this person. It's almost as if when they walk away that they have talked to Jesus Himself. And so may we echo that in our own lives with our speech. Not only what we say, but how we say. Not only with our lives, not only the way we live, but the small content of our lives. And so, Father, I ask that you would continue to shape this church into the image of Christ. And that we express with great intentionality that you are the one who has continue, or started this work and continues this work in this church. That we pray that you, your presence would be ever so evident in our communities, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. And that we would express the goodness of of your son. And so Father, let that work not stop with us. May we not be seen as Pharisees, but the people of Jesus, as a faith community that loves, as a faith community that intends great things and definitely acts on those good things that we have found in the gospel itself. Continue your work in us. And may our eyes be open to see that work. Father, we offer all in each of these things in the name of Him that we came here to praise. We offer it in Christ's name. Amen.